0: You're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Paul Arnold, founder and managing partner at Switch Ventures. Data-driven venture capital is a controversial topic with strong opinions attached to it. The classic rebuttal of data-driven VC is the idea that successful early-stage startups look wildly different. Even if you do capture clean data, there's a fundamental skew, and so the outcomes are falsely comforting. Switch is breaking through that narrative. With outstanding returns as a function of a data science-backed approach, Paul has a different perspective on how to be a successful early-stage investor. This conversation was fun. We chatted about our common backgrounds with lawyers and McKinsey consultants, and Paul gave deep insights on the state of venture. Welcome, Paul, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Paul, really interested to dive into all things kind of state of venture today. But, you know, before we dig in, you have a pretty unconventional background and it's actually one we share in. You went to law school, then you worked at McKinsey, and then you made your way into tech. Talk a little bit more about your background and what led you to founding Switch.
1: Yeah, no, happy to. So I, uh, I like you, went to law school, um, which was a place I really enjoyed and thrived in kind of a, a bookish type of sense. Um, Thought I wanted to be a professor, realized I didn't really want to do that, realized I, I I wanted to be a lawyer even less, just as kind of a matter of personality. I wanted to be involved in building. Um, I had a strong draw to come out to Silicon Valley. Um, and so I, I ended up joining McKinsey at law school. Um, spending several years there as a, as a bit of a generalist, uh, working with a lot of clients across tech and, and consumer and, and, and finance. Uh, and then uh, had the opportunity to join a a startup at the time that had just raised a series A, a company called App Direct. Um, It came out as kind of the first executive hire with a team of 20 folks. And I just had the fortune of of watching that company grow grow tremendously. Um, And uh, I I ran most of the business side of that company. We scaled up uh, through about 250 million in financing um, with a white labeled uh, enterprise SaaS solution. Um, And um, was investing a lot uh, kind of out of my personal Personal checkbook and thinking a lot about venture. At some point, that I was strongly interested in building my own my own firm if I was going to do it, and um, start building one in front of the other. And 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 uh, about five years later, uh, here I am. Here I am today.
0: Yeah, and let's it's an interesting kind of it's an interesting story because I think it's it's unconventional, very similar to your investing approach, right? Your your approach, I think, is actually one of the most unique ones in venture today, which is interesting because you know venture is an industry that prides itself on funding disruptive innovation, but hasn't really changed all that much itself in the past 20 years. So you've supercharged your investing uh, with data science. So talk, talk a little bit more about
1: that. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've i always just been kind of a quantitatively driven guy. Um, and, you know, going back to being a middle school math teacher at one point in my life and uh, a at time at McKinsey and just, just sort of always thinking about things in very probabilistic terms. Um, and so when I started doing venture investing, I, I, I thought about it that way as well. And, and early on, kind of about you know going back again like five years, um, the, the earliest sort of versions of my thinking about it were to gather as much data as I possibly could. Um, at that time, you know it was, it was probably a couple gigabytes of, of data about founders, and uh, and about their exits, and, um, and 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 doing just a lot of sort of you know regression analysis type of work. Uh, to think about where you could identify uh, teams that were likely to outperform. And that early work gave me kind of a lot of, kind of heuristic sort of decisions and, and places I knew I wanted to play, um, including, you know, McKinsey alums. I've kind of famously invested a lot uh, in in McKinsey alums. And, and I did that not not so much out of some loyalty to my old old job or something, but because they were clearly um, dramatically and meaningfully outperforming the average venture investment, and and it, it was just a place where I had a lot of, a lot of a lot of friends and connections. Um, but the 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 approach, you know, has always been to take math, um, think probabilistically about how you can drive outperformance, uh, apply it to a traditional venture capital process with with its kind of high touch diligence and company involvement and everything else. Um, and, and just change the probability of, of everything you're doing. Uh, that's wor- worked really well for me, and so I've only kind of continued to double down on it every year, um, where the, the amount of data sort of we've we've built pipes into is, has become quite, quite meaningful. Uh, the type of data science modeling, machine learning work we're doing with that information has become quite sophisticated. Um, and and it's and and the reach and like the types of companies and geographies and people we can think about has, has become quite broad, um, and and so I just fundamentally believe it's uh, it's an approach that really changes the the way um, the way that kind of the game is played like the hand that I'm dealt uh, when I start thinking about uh, any particular venture investment and um, and 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 just uh, continuing to do it.
0: And how do you, it's an interesting approach, and I'm I'm curious how you think about kind of the the opposite side of that approach, right? You wrote a piece in Forbes yesterday, um, which is great. I'm going to link it in the bio, and I I suggest everybody listening read it. Um, But you you wrote a piece where you talked about investing strategies and how basically the North Star for any venture strategy is whether it pushes you up the power lock right, a well-known phenomenon in venture. And I could make the argument that a data-driven approach in many senses could actually lead you to the wrong conclusion because you're drawing out patterns that might not be indicative of success. And at the seed stage where you play, there's a lot of patterns that can actually be noise. And, and the challenging thing I think in some respect also is Venture is a game of decades, and, uh, and it, uh, it's a game of decades, right? And so drawing the sort of patterns uh, that you draw might be noise, and then having the feedback loop to gauge whether or not the patterns noise are noise or not ends up being a protracted time period. So how do you how do you think about that as you think of a data group approach?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. And and, and the, the short answer to it is that this is where doing the data... Uh, in terms of quality, in terms of doing the modeling, in terms of thinking about the math, we're doing it all well matters. You could do this all very poorly. Lots of people have done this very poorly. Um, I've seen people doing this poorly. Um, uh, and and you would, you, you'll get the outcome you would expect uh, from doing something poorly. Um, there's a lot, lot, lot of, there are a lot of problems to, to be solved in, in doing this well. In terms of uh, sourcing, cleaning, organizing good data, good infrastructure, and then doing good math that that does that does um, that, that leads you down that, that chases after patterns, as you say, that are reliable. Um, you know, so you have you have just some really classic stuff. You know, does does the does the future sort of look like the past or not? And that that's like that's a hard question that you have to kind of um, uh, look at in, in like every single variable you test. So if you look at it in like an industry variable, you say. Um, hey, what industries perform really well? Social media is so great. Look at the returns. We should invest social media. It's, it's obviously the wrong answer. Um, I'm sure there'll be an, another social media company uh, to come up. But generally, like it's it's a, it's, a, it's a phenomenon that's played out. And so you have to think about it piece by piece by piece. And you, you have to think about the data part in, in sort of a less uh, qualitative sense. But what does it look like to build models that have high reliability when you're in, in complex multidimensional nonlinear spaces like you do in machine learning, um, where you aren't overfitting problems, where you aren't getting data leakage issues, where your answer is kind of hidden in these massive data sets before your models even get started and all you're doing is, is picking up that leak. Um, there, there's lots and lots of hard problems like that, but when they're solved at the same time, we get, we get these extremely Reliable models. We test them with train-test splits. We do. We think about them in lots of different ways, um, and it's 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 clear in, in, in kind of the results we have directly from investments going back now. Um, it's it's also clear uh, in, in theoretical senses uh, when we when we test and stretch it in lots of ways. But you know, the short answer is, is is it's hard. You have to think hard, and you have to you have to kind of execute on on the modeling well.
0: How much data do you actually need to do that properly? Right. I mean, I would imagine you would need a set of, you know, like tens of thousands of startups. Yeah. How how do you, you know, how do you glean that data? How do you, how do you think about that? You
1: you, you need massive sets of data and and you need massive sets of data that you can trust. And and that is, it's not a small challenge.
0: Have you found your investment focus evolve um, through this approach? And and I, I asked that from the the perspective that, you know, I've had a number of conversations with LPs, and it's it's interesting when you talk with LPs, um, and the, the conversation is focused a lot on, you know, valuing funds or funds of funds that have some sort of specialization or some sort of differentiation, but it's interesting because when you pull back and you look at the best performing funds all, of all time, many of them, actually, actually all of them are, are all the generalist funds, right, first round, general catalyst, et cetera. Um, talk a little bit about how you think about that and and whether that changes going forward. And I'm really interested in kind of this premise of, um, how data has informed kind of the way you focus
1: on industries, investments, et cetera, at the seed stage. Yeah, I guess there's two answers to that question. Um, you know, I, I, I am very much a generalist, um, so, so long as it's in the space that I can get my head around, um, you know, I invest in all internet companies, um, uh, but they're, you know, their e-commerce companies, they're marketplaces, they're SaaS companies, they're consumer and enterprise. Um, and so, you know, I, I, am rather broad. There's stuff I definitely won't touch, like healthcare. Generally, struggle with security. You know, there's all these places where I know I won't get my head around it. You know, the way I, I, I think about it is, you, you the, there's something to like know, know yourself um, when you're thinking about this. For, you know, one of the most natural things. when I started out. I was a, I was executive in enterprise SaaS. Uh, was to sort of, you know, have an enterprise SaaS-focused investment thesis. It's an area I know a lot about. Um, but I, I know, uh, I'm, I'm just certain that I'd be a worse investor if I did that. I, 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 I know that by being a generalist um, and moving between spaces and finding the most promising opportunity I can find between them, that I just know that I drive, drive more performance, I do better. Um, I have a lot of fun doing it. And it has to do with, with, with kind of knowing what sort of person you are. Um, like do you find do you find kind of your strength in being the person who knows you know the the final degree of knowledge about each topic more than anybody else will ever know in the room? um or or do you kind of find pa- you know patterns that are broad in general and you you think in terms of analogies, um you you make inferences from really different things to each other? You just it's a different sort of, mindset uh, and you have to just sort of know which which is the one you thrive in and and the general sort of model is what works for me and 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 for a lot of other investors um but there's there's many many extremely successful funds that take a specialist approach and and it works well for them
0: yeah, it's interesting because it does. I mean, taking the generalist approach, right? If you kind of go back to your your article from Forbes, if you're approaching or creating a strategy from the perspective of moving up the power law curve, keeping a generalist approach keeps you open to the widest set of opportunities. So a, a lot of the work becomes how do you kind of optimize that funnel, right? And not yeah. round out choice, but it keeps you it keeps you open to
1: every type of potential opportunity. Well, that, that's absolutely right. So, like you know, the, um, the 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 my approach of of using math as a serious part of a sourcing um, strategy, um, it lends itself to you want kind of as wide aperture as you can manage uh, at the top of your funnel. Uh, you like you know the models gonna pick out the most exciting things. Um, you want to be open to as many of those um, you know kind of outlier outlier companies as you can be uh reasonably can be in terms you know with some limits around geography and a few industries um, be- because that's that's where you get getting your advantage in the first place
0: so let's talk about that outlier effect a little bit more right for the for the longest time there's been this adage in venture about you know how you can uncouple great company creation from the current state economic cycle and i think if you go back to something like the the 70s or the 80s or so when venture really institutionalized there's really, you know, something to the tune of, you know, twenty, thirty investment opportunities a year that are highly compelling, and and the number doesn't really drop in down years, and it never really goes dramatically up in up years. And if you believe it's only, you know, fifteen to twenty opportunities, let's say, you know, the math of seed investing gets really tough, and and you lend yourself to that kind of generalist approach because if you, you know, by design cut out an industry or a business model you're by definition cutting out some some handset of of those opportunities. On the other hand, if you believe we're at the earliest stages of a huge technological revolution, everything's going to be a tech company. The dollar amount start companies has precipitously dropped. You probably believe that that number continues to go up and up. How do you think about that kind of framing, and and which side of the coin do you find yourself on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that I have several thoughts, I guess. I mean, one is that, that you you certainly are on the hunt for those twenty or thirty companies every year. That that really is what matters in venture. I think that seed stage investing uh, lends itself because you're coming in so early um, to a, wi- a, a wider set than those than those twenty or thirty, I would say. Yep. Um, yep. there you know a, a medium sized win can be a big win if you started small. Um yep. and and, and and so it is it is a bit bigger than that, and and so seed stage does help with with that, um, you know, having a set that matters. I I don't think we're you know when I th- think in terms of kind of like innovation and rates of change and technology, I don't think we're um, I don't think we're either dying off or or at an inflection point. I I kind of see it more as just like you know, change um, is continuing apace. Um, I think we had. We've had sort of a big revolution or two in technology uh, every decade for, for, for a while. I, I think we'll just kind of continue at that rate for a while now. We've got some mega trends like AI that will sort of take a decade or more to unfold, um, probably longer than that. Um, and, and we've got some similar things in sort of you know biosciences space that I, that I don't do. Um, I I just see it kind of continuing continuing along and and no reason for for alarm or or sort of any kind of irrational exuberance about the the rate of technological change.
0: That's interesting. I can I can buy the and Chris Dixon had a really good post up a couple of years ago about this idea of every kind of the twenty years there's a new technological shift. Yeah. And then in that bucket, right, there's a gestation period and a maturity period. I'm curious if you know, if we if let's say you buy let's say we buy the premise and we say, you know consistent rate of change, consistent rate of new platform, I'm curious how you think about whether these opportunities become more widespread outside of a few key hubs. And the ones I'm really thinking of are, you know, Silicon Valley where you are, China, et cetera. Um, or do you think that, you know, kind of colossal company creation becomes more consolidated than it is right now into a few hubs as the gains become in- increasingly concentrated?
1: Yeah, I, I, I do think that it continues to uh, spread geographically. Um, and, uh, and I, and I kind of invest and spend my time accordingly. Um, you know, I, I do my bets sort of all over, um, the country for the most part and have done, done a little beyond. Um, and I, I, think that it's, it's easy to get a little too excited about that idea sometimes. Um, you know, I, I don't think Cincinnati is going to explode next year exactly, uh, but I, but I do think kind of the, the broad trend of, of seeing more companies emerge in, in more, um, uh, more more cities kind of down the down the stack a little bit will will continue um, you, I think that you see cities um, studying what's going on in Silicon Valley all the time and other countries studying all the time and, and trying to create as supportive environments as they possibly can you see uh, you see companies setting up uh, second and third offices in all sorts of cities, which help with sort of the the knowledge distribution that's required for it t- to work. Um, you see universities setting up programs to try to foster and support these things. So I think all of these things continue to to keep those other uh, other ecosystems healthy, and, and I, I don't think that 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 phenomenon is going to go away.
0: One one of the things I've I've been most interested in, especially as you kind of think with the state event or the landscape. Right. You see a significant amount of, um, you know, the dynamics of speed have changed a lot. You see a lot more seed fund, you see a lot more dollar coming in top of the funnel. Um, and then on the, on the kind of opposite side of the spectrum, on the growth stage, you, you kind of see uh, this new entrance of capital that's basically turning into private IPOs. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot kind of uh, with, with those dynamics is this idea of net public company creation. Right. Um, what does less net public companies mean um, for society at large? My thesis, a little bit, has been that it concentrates economic gains. Right. It it makes it uh, it, you know, it it concentrates gains, and, and um, it's harder for retail participants to to get involved. And that's you know that's great. that's not a great thing. Um, how do you think about kind of this this idea of late stage? Uh, Private IPOs, like late-stage growth capital, and and what that means kind of at large for for folks to participate in tech.
1: Yeah, I, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, point. I mean, the it, it's certainly true that uh, fewer companies um, are, are rushed to IPO. They wait far longer. They stay private far longer, um, uh, and can even live most of their meaningful life private. Um, you know, and that's driven in part by regulation on one hand, that makes it less attractive to be in the public markets. Um, it's driven in part by um, by you know very large private funds that have allowed companies to to the option to stay private at much much larger sizes, uh, and continue growing <clears throat> and keeping that growth private. Um, so the, and the, so those have certainly happened. I mean, one thing you, your point about sort of the retail investor, um, you know, sort of everybody else in the country losing access to this i mean one thing to keep in mind i i think it's partially true but on the other hand you know the some of the largest allocators to this space um are are things like retirement plans and school endowments and so you know pension holders for example uh are participating in this market even if even if they may may not be aware of it but through through their pension plan managers um, and, and, you know, same with same with students and in, 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 in endowed schools. Um, that said, not every sort of retail investor has it. I, you know, I don't I don't see it necessarily as like a problem of they're missing the opportunity to create wealth. I think that a well-constructed, sophisticated, you know, portfolio of public um, public equities. If you want the type of risk that you see in private markets, in venture capital in particular, you can approximate it in. Uh, public markets with a well-constructed portfolio with with really high beta, um, you know, in tech growth sectors, um, and so, you know, you know maybe I, maybe I'm naive to something, but I but I tend to feel like there are other avenues to to take big risks um, as an investor that you, where you don't have to be directly investing in in venture. Type companies. You know, we
0: we continue kind of on that thread. I'm I'm curious, from your perspective, as some of these companies do go public, uh, and especially now because they're going public, you know, much later in their growth cycles, they're going mu- they're going public at much larger value, and and they're you know forced to be, and I think rightly so, more responsible corporate citizens because of the scale at which they're coming out. Um, I'm curious how you think about you know whether the playbook or whether the thought process of what to keep in mind as you go public changes and today. And, and I think about that less though so from the perspective of just, you know, when you're a public company, everything is disclosed, right? You're, you're operating quarter to quarter. And, and I, I, I question it more, I question your kind of perspective more from the from the thought of, you know, public sentiment is um, souring on big tech in Midwest, right? We've seen this kind of play out with the Amazon debacle this week. We've seen it play out with Facebook over the past year. Are there you know are there kind of differences or things that you know public tech companies need to do a better job of you know as they go through
1: that next stage? Yeah, absolutely, and not just public tech companies. Um, I, I think that like public tech companies get it the worst and they kind of get their, their ass handed to them because they, they 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 didn't get good at this stuff before. Like they, the, the whole ecosystem from kind of the beginning to the end should be better about things like ethics and social issues. Um, I, I firmly believe that, and I think the tech sector tends to be bad at this. And, uh, you know, you, you could guess why they're bad at it, but, 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 but the truth is, like, tech companies tend to be very tone-deaf and, and, and make huge mistakes. We, we wrote an article in TechCrunch along these lines, um, you know, that, 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 that venture and, and tech need to be paying a lot more attention to these social issues, um, or people will be speaking about them in the same way they've spoken about Wall Street forever, which is with disdain. And hostility and, and public sentiment turned against it. And I think that we, we only see uh, that continuing to happen to the tech industry if you're in, in headlines almost every single day. And it's, it's, it's a problem that we need to, to step up, not complain about, and, and and play a bigger, better role.
0: What do you think are the best ways to solve that problem?
1: I, I think it's a lot of hard conversations. I, I think that the, the, the pressure exerted by, 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 for example, the media um about you know issues of of gender in tech issues of ethics in tech uh, issues of privacy um, all these things i I think that's that's healthy i think we should be having hard uh conversations with each other frequently and often in professional settings and private settings i think that we should call people out when they make excuses i mean it's it's natural for people to be defensive I feel like they're under fire and want to defend people that they see as the heroes, whether it's Amazon or Facebook or a, so, you know smaller startups. And we actually should pause and and look for like accountability rather than, than kind of be defensive about our industry.
0: I'm curious how you think about the, the same kind of conflicts of interest and values or the ethics concern when you think about um, when you think about LP bases. You know, one specifically comes to mind. SoftBank comes onto the scene, deploys a fund that's you know pretty much larger than the entire industry historically, and one of their major LPs is the Saudi sovereign wealth fund, and this was a huge kind of issue press, um, you know, a, a couple months ago. Uh, but you know, going forward, what I'm I'm curious about is how do you think this idea of kind of value conflicts plays out in the coming years in the ecosystem? I, I, I
1: it, it's a it's a tricky, tough topic. Um, I have you know I, I have a a friend who was in a conversation with, with with softbank and and brought some of these topics up i mean all I can say is like um for for, for a lot of founders um, it's it, it is a real concern um i do I do hear things from founders about um, asking asking funds you know who, who is your who's your limited partner base um, and and they care
0: we'll have to have to see how it how it plays out a lot of the founder conversations i've had have been similar where you know folks are and i suspect this has been going on for a while but i think maybe it's being brought more to the more to the public surface where there's a real kind of intentionality now of you know who funds you and and what their not only what their kind of investment track record is and such but really what you know what their history of operating and what are the additional sources uh, that that they bring to the table yeah. You know, Paul, as we, as we round out the conversation, I, I kind of want to ask you the, you know, the famous Peter Thiel question as it relates to your thesis on investing, which is, you know, what important truth about investing or the investment landscape do you believe that very few people would agree with you? on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think very few people would agree with me that if you do quantitative investing uh, and you do it well um, at the early, early stages, uh, you will drive sustained performance. Firmly believe yeah. it.
0: I think it's going to be really, really interesting to track. I, I know the folks at Social Capital were doing something interesting. I'm not sure if that project's still running, but um, there's, there's a lot of – there's a couple of folks, I think, in the that have really taken on this data-driven approach. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how the returns pan out over the, over the next couple of years or so. Yeah. Well, Paul, this, is, this has been great. This has been a really interesting conversation. I'm glad you were able to make the time. So you know, thanks again for joining us and, and really enjoyed having you on today.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.